Let me extend a very warm welcome to this series of Gifford Lectures at the University of Edinburgh for the session 2013 to 2014. My name is Stuart Brown, and I am Professor of Ecclesiastical History and Deputy Convener of the Gifford Lectureships Committee. And for those who may be watching this online, we are in the Assembly Hall in Edinburgh, the meeting place of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. Allow me first to say a few words about the Gifford Lectures before I introduce our speaker. The Gifford Lectures were established in 1885 by a gift from Adam Lord Gifford, a justice of the Court of Session and a man of broad cultivation and learning. He endowed a series of public lectures at each of the four older Scottish universities, Edinburgh, St. Andrews, Glasgow, and Aberdeen, for, quote, promoting, advancing, teaching, and diffusing the study of natural theology. With natural theology defined as, quote, the knowledge of God and the foundation of ethics and morals. The first Gifford Lectures were delivered in 1888, and they very soon became one of the world's most important lecture series for philosophical inquiry and reflection. At the University of Edinburgh, our past Gifford Lectures have included such luminaries as William James, Henri Bergson, James G. Fraser, Albert Schweitzer, Reinhold Niebuhr, Iris Nuredach, and Charles Taylor. Our Gifford Lecture for the session 2013 to 2014 brings added luster to this distinguished company. He is Dr. Rowan Williams, now Lord Williams of Oystermouth, the Master of Magdalen College, Cambridge, and the former Archbishop of Canterbury. Rowan Williams was born in Swansea in South Wales into a Welsh-speaking family. Educated at the universities of Cambridge and of Oxford, he earned his doctorate with a thesis on the theology of Vladimir Losky, a leading figure in 20th century Russian religious thought. He then lectured for two years at the College of the Resurrection in Mirfield, and then taught for several years at Cambridge University. During these years, he also served pastorally as a priest in the Church of England. In 1986, he was appointed the Lady Margaret Professor of Divinity at Oxford University. In 1991, Professor Williams was consecrated Bishop of Monmouth on the Welsh borders, and in 1999, he became Archbishop of the Church in Wales. Then, in 2002, he became Archbishop of Canterbury and the symbolic head of the worldwide Anglican Communion, serving the church for the next decade with an abiding warmth, dignity, and grace, and providing valuable leadership, particularly in the areas of interreligious dialogue and understanding. In December 2012, he demitted office as archbishop and returned to academic life. 
He became master of Magdalen College, Cambridge, and a life peer in the House of Lords. Lord Williams is acknowledged internationally as an outstanding thinker, writer, scholar, and teacher. His more than two dozen books cover a wide range of related fields, theology, philosophy, spirituality, and religious aesthetics. He has published studies of Dostoevsky, C.S. Lewis, and the poet W.H. Auden. His most recent book, Faith in the Public Square, is a collection of public talks and lectures on the implications of religion for contemporary politics and social policy. A scholar with a deep love of language and who speaks and reads or reads some 11 languages, he is also an accomplished poet and a translator of poetry. He was elected a fellow of the British Academy in 1990. The title of his Gifford Lectures is Making Representations, Religious Faith, and the Habits of Language. And over the course of the next two weeks, we will have six lectures. The lecture this evening is being recorded, and the video will be available online on the Gifford website shortly. The lecture is also being streamed live around the world. Lord Williams, it is an honor for me to invite you to present the first of your Gifford lectures on representing reality. Thank you very much indeed for that generous welcome and for the enormous honor of being invited to deliver these lectures. When I thought back to the list of distinguished predecessors who have delivered these lectures, my heart sank very considerably. But you have to try, as they say, so I shall. Now, the phrase natural theology once meant the kind of discourse about God that you could develop without appealing to the unreliable authority of claimed revelation. Natural theology was, in intention, a kind of democratizing move, a demystifying move, taking away unaccountable authority, or so it seemed. But one of its implications was a real ambivalence about the very idea of a God who acts. If we bypass revelation, we bracket out any notion that God actively interrupts our perceptions or thought processes, that God gives the divine self to be known in any way other than as an all-pervasive divine presence in things, or else simply through that uniquely problematic not-quite-thing that is the human self. The God envisaged by natural theology seems to be a God who waits to be discovered, who can be thought about as patient or self-abnegating, even in some sense powerless if you want to speak in terms that have some sort of personal resonance, but a God who for the purposes of this kind of discourse, philosophical discourse, has to be thought of as essentially 
passive to our inquiries. Perhaps we might arrive at a way of speaking about God at the end of this argument. Perhaps the evidences of God's character that have emerged in reflection on that presence we have attempted to track will allow us scope to work out what are the relations which men and the whole universe bear to him, to quote the words of Lord Gifford's bequest. But in such a framework, we're basically moving from consideration of what's more clear to what's less clear. From the contemplation of inner climate and outer environment, moral laws and starry heavens, to reverent supposition, to what we might call evocation as opposed to invocation. Language about God is to be summoned up with due caution and reserve as a plausible or defensible supplement to some more standard kind of discourse, a supplement that both picks up a scatter of unresolved questions and lends a certain emotional colouring, reverence maybe, to our response to our environment. Now, it's become something of a tradition for Gifford lecturers periodically to kick over the traces and protest at this framework. From Karl Barth to Stanley Hauerwas, we've heard a succession of formidable assaults on a scheme that assumes the inadmissibility of revelation and the irrelevance of sacred narrative and community practice in exploring the roots of our talk about God. Stanley Hauerwas, a few years ago, began his Gifford lectures by explaining why he could not begin from a starting point that effectively ruled out the identification of the God being spoken about in these lectures with the Trinitarian God of Christian faith. And I admit to sharing some of this unease. But at the same time, I want to put in something of a plea for rediscovering and redefining something about natural theology. Something to do with questioning the assumptions, not just about God, but about language that are around in old-fashioned natural theology, but also in old-fashioned theologies of revelation. Hauerwas, interestingly, quotes that great Dominican theologian, Cornelius Ernst, who defined natural theology as the task of tracing how everyday language reached its boundaries and posed a question. How is everyday language interpenetrated, made problematic by something else? How might one go on speaking of God in the ordinary world? And for this to make sense, we have to recognize that so-called ordinary language is a lot less ordinary than we usually suppose. Much more liable to rupture and oddity. And I'll have more to say about that in future lectures. And at least we learn something by mapping the points where things become interestingly difficult, where the ordinary comes under pressure. You may remember that Wittgenstein was prompted to rethink his philosophy of language by the challenge to describe what was the logical form of a particular Italian gesture of obscene abuse. Analyzing what was going on in such a gesture required more than a view which treated propositions as picturing the logical shape of a state of affairs. And in similar vein, I want to appeal to a rather less well-known philosopher, and that is the Australian cartoonist Michael Lunig, possibly the finest 
public moral commentator in Australia, not to say the English-speaking world. Lunig writes about how he learned the use of the word God. I quote, I have come to regard God as a one-word poem, probably a folk poem. I learned it from my parents when I was a child, as they wandered about the backyard or in the house. My father might say rather despairingly, where in God's name is the bloody hammer? <laughs> and my mother might answer, God only knows. <laughs> God is, for a child like this, a useful word, says Lunig, for a vague allusion to what profoundly matters, as inescapable, he says, as the taste of honey or the shape of the moon. But I don't believe, despite the word vague there, that Lunig is encouraging us not to think about how we use the word. On the contrary, he's urging us to notice and to think about the fact that the way the word enters the everyday is something to do with what doesn't get resolved or controlled in a hurry. He goes on to say that the way in which he was subsequently introduced to propositions about God made little sense against the background of this initial folk poetry learning. He doesn't put it quite like this, but his implication is that the propositions he learned in his conventional religious education reduced God to an admittedly unusual inhabitant of the universe, whose acts and opinions and usually adverse judgments could be predicted and who was endowed with a monopoly of sanction and control. But this is to portray God and God's dealings with the world as simply another department of description here is an agent with these properties and habits to be added to the list of other agents with properties and habits. God comes in as an extra item in our routine description of what is the case. And somehow, beginning purely and simply with narrative and tradition is just as risky and misleading in talking about God as beginning with some supposedly innocent account of the God we can deduce from the world. Where in God's name is the bloody hammer? Maybe a far more interesting and important theological question. And indeed, revelatory moment. And quite a bit of catechesis. Now, in the light of something like this, a defensible natural theology would perhaps be a discourse that attempted to spot where routine description failed to exhaust what needed to be said, however exactly we spell out the content of this phrase. And that's emphatically not about spotting explanatory gaps in the usual sense. This would just be looking for extra descriptive resources which we happen not to have yet. It's more like the recognition that a faithful description of the world we inhabit involves taking account of responses to our environment that gesture towards a context for the description we've been engaged in, not as a further explanatory level, but as a cluster of models and idioms and practices without which our normal repertoire of practice wouldn't finally make sense. Such a picture has something importantly in common with the superficially startling approach to natural theology of another maverick Thomist interpreter of the mid to late 20th century, the American Victor Preller. He proposed, I quote, that the program of natural theology is to lead the intellect through a series of judgments which hopefully will result in a negative insight, 
productive of the further judgment that the intellect has encountered a non-intelligible level of experience, incapable of formulation in a conceptually meaningful question. The conclusion of natural theology is then the paradox that the human intellect is ordered to a reality it cannot know. Put less provocatively, and I think that is a very provocative formulation with which I have some difficulties, put less provocatively, the process we're seeking to characterize is one in which we're brought to a point where to go on speaking at all requires a shift of expectation, a shift away from the assumption that there will be a point of descriptive closure, a definitive adequation to what is in view. This happens when a descriptive account, which is correct or sustainable as far as it goes, leaves out of consideration what we most want to talk about. And to carry on a conversation or exploration, we have to jettison the mode of descriptive discourse we've so far taken for granted. What is lacking is not more evidence, more facts, more knowledge in the usual sense of the word. The American philosopher Stanley Cavell's celebrated essay on Shakespeare's Othello ends with the observation that Othello's problem in the play is not that he lacks knowledge, but, I quote, that he could not yield to what he knew. He could not yield to what he knew. We shall be hearing a lot more from Stanley Cavell, but that phrase is a pregnant, if paradoxical one, at this stage of the discussion. When we acknowledge the impulse to continue when ordinary description is done with, we're not looking for extra material to work on, but accepting that what confronts us is still interrogating us. And to seek a register for speaking in this situation might indeed be described as a yielding to what we know, accepting the, the interrogation, accepting the limits of certainty, yet looking for a discourse that we can acknowledge between speakers. Now we could apply this to St. Thomas Aquinas's five ways, often regarded as the classic form of natural theology. We might say, reading St. Thomas, that he is inviting us, for example, to develop the discourse of causal explanation to the point where we sense the need to change gear. So, everything we encounter, for Aquinas, is involved in relations of dependence. If dependence is built into how we make sense of anything at all, are we bound to find ourselves looking for a language to express some sort of global dependence? That's summarizing various bits of Aquinas's very complex and sophisticated exposition. It's been very strongly argued by philosophers like Tony Kenny that there's a logical flaw in the way Aquinas puts this. To say that for every phenomenon there is a cause is not to say that all phenomena must therefore have a single cause. But I don't think that's quite the thrust of Aquinas's overall point, which perhaps could be better expressed by saying that if it's part of the definition of every particular intelligible phenomenon we encounter that it is contingent, that is that it's the result of a process of some sort, we could reasonably say that it's part of the definition of finite intelligible being, that it's involved in processes of causation and thus marked by dependence. In more modern terms, 
All energy we encounter is involved in energy exchanges. But are we not then pushed to ask about the character of energy as such, or what Aquinas might have called pure act? If we move in that direction in order to make sense of all specific cases of talking about energy or action, we're not looking for another object to explore. It couldn't be another instance of anything, as if the global dependence of finite being were a case of dependence in general. Nor can we see this as some absolute first link in a causal chain, which would be to deny the premise that everything in the universe is dependent, since one thing, the first of the series, then would not be dependent. <clears throat> no, something is required which is expressible only in connection with the language of dependence, yet can't be formulated within the normal frame of reference we use to deal with causal relations. If dependence is built into the structure of all possible experience and understanding, we're saying that to be anything intelligible at all is to be caused. We could leave it at that, but this would be to ignore the question about whether and how we frame this comprehensive statement by asking about what this energy or act is. And the frame proposed is the proposal that finite being as such and in sum is marked by dependence. To exist as a discrete subject of predication is to depend, so that, so that which is depended on is evoked or gestured to. That but to paraphrase Victor Preller, we can't formulate a sensible question as to what sort of thing it is that doesn't depend, because by definition, we've now moved away from asking about sorts of things. Well, a natural theology that started from something like this model, which I hope may become clearer as I go on, would and does, I think, look rather different from a process of just accumulating features of the world that you could only explain by supposing a creative agent. This is not a case of moving towards a probable conclusion from a survey of the evidence. But I wonder whether, at this stage, a small divergence from the main thrust of the argument may be helpful. Because what I'm talking about is less a matter of a tight conceptual argument being unfolded than a matter of a particular kind of practice of speaking and asking. Developing quite deliberately in a certain direction, a rhetoric, a verbal practice of asking about the world until it hits the buffers. At which point you don't look for an explanation of some bit of it you haven't yet explained. You ask, is there another way of talking about this? And there may be a bit of a parallel here with the meditational practice of some kinds of Buddhism, particularly what's called insight meditation, vipassana, in Buddhism. In such meditation, the meditator is asked to consider the universal nature of all phenomena, the truth that every apparent substance is the product of a hierarchy of synthesizing perceptions. Everything has come to be. Nothing is in itself what's often called the principle of dependent origination in Buddhism, the axiom that all things exist dependent on things that determine them. That particular phrase I owe to the Dalai Lama, no less. And all things constitute a continuum or a process 
without a first cause, that is one all-determining agency within the system, insight is seeing what has come to be as having come to be. And such insight liberates because it allows us to recognize that the apparent world, including the apparent self, has no element of permanence or solidity in it. In the central paradox of Buddhist thought, the acknowledgement of universal determination opens the door to freedom. We understand how our minds put together perceptions, how perceptions arise from unacknowledged needs or longings, how needs and longings arise from a mythological picture of the self as some thing that is greedy to be satisfied, some thing that can claim a sort of ownership of what it knows. So vipassana meditation exposes the imprisoning effect of taking the phenomenal world as a simple given, when in fact the world around us is transaction, a pattern of universal dependence, including, crucially, dependence on our synthesizing habits of mind. And what remains, if you see the world of your experience in this way, what remains, what abides, is the unconditioned or the uncreated or the unmoved, which we experience or contact in the moment of cessation, of release, the stilling of the cycle, nirvana. For the Buddhist, the process of enlightenment begins when suffering is recognized as a problem for oneself and for others. The world, in other words, does not provide its own justification. The world does not answer the question of why suffering occurs. The response in Buddhism is to work through the causal chains of the world's actual being in order to bring to light the fact that we suffer because we misunderstand what we are. Once we are not subject to the dictatorship of the ego, we grasp that to see the story of the world in terms of dependent origination allows us unexpectedly to be other than just cogs in the machinery. Not by giving us superhuman liberty, but allowing us to see that our complete and unequivocal immersion in this world is our path into stillness. We don't look for somewhere else where we can be our real selves. Here and now we see both the universality of causation and the sheer actuality of the moment so that we enter the unconditioned state. Now, my point is not that I have become a Buddhist, but that this is an example of developing a discourse to breaking point. There's no attempt to arrest the process by identifying a single first moment or first principle within the system. There's no search for a gap into which you can stick some special supernatural agency. There is a process of causal explanation and exposition up to the point where you realize both, first, that everything falls under the rubric of dependent origination and that this is not the end of the story, not a closure on all possible strategies of conscious and free speaking or living. Something becomes possible that operates on another plane of awareness. Not so much, perhaps not at all, anything like a further description, but a space to inhabit, a perspective, itself deeply resistant to description in the ordinary way. And the point for our purposes is that what's been happening in this meditative process of vipassana is not an argument, but a method. 
a practice of thinking to the edge of what can be said. Think to the point where there seems nothing further to be said and see what happens. It's as far as could be from auto-suggestion because there can be no prescription as to what does happen at such a point. You can't reduce enlightenment to a technique. And part of the discipline is sitting for a long period with the insolubility of what's in front of you. In some forms of Buddhism, this is ritualized in the shape of the koan, a form of words that resists conceptual reduction and clarification or rational restatement, and so becomes a kind of condensation of what we confront at the edge of descriptive language. So that to sit with the question, what is the sound of one hand clapping, is to sit at the edge of what can be said, because there is not going to be an answer to that. And if there's not going to be an answer, you have to break through into something that is not an answer, but is nonetheless a real mode of consciousness, which itself eludes precise characterization. So this brief excursion into Buddhist thought and practice is meant to bring us back to the question of whether it's perhaps more helpful to see not only St. Thomas Aquinas's five ways, but the whole enterprise of a reconfigured natural theology as a method. I've referred more than once to an invitation to think in a particular direction. And the implication of this is that natural theology is, as I've said earlier, a practice or at least it outlines possible practices which bring us to the point at which we run out of things to say in the discourse we started with, but recognize that this running out is not just an ending. And what then supervenes is not the vagueness that Lunig speaks of, though, as I say, I don't think he actually means vague. He's observing, I think, the indeterminate way in which we're normally introduced to this sort of thinking. It's a different kind of accuracy or adequacy that's called for, something not descriptive in the ordinary sense, but emphatically not arbitrary either. And the challenge in speaking about God is the challenge of referring appropriately to what is not an object among others or a definable substance that can be isolated and examined. Part of what I'll be arguing in these lectures is that the labor involved in scrutinizing and using language about God with integrity is bound up with the scrutiny of language itself, the recognition of the ways in which language puts questions to itself and destabilizes our expectations that we can settle or complete our thinking of the world we inhabit. Looking at the actual varieties of and stresses in our speech may give us some insight into how we honestly negotiate the territory beyond ordinary description, the grammar of the various sorts of incompleteness we have to confront. So I'll be looking in these lectures at a succession of features of our human language. The first that I'll be considering is a set of issues around language and freedom. What does it mean to see human language as something other than just another system of determined behavior, seeing it as something that's impossible to reduce to patterns of stimulus and response. There are quite a few current philosophies which aim so to reduce it. Are any of these sustainable 
in the face of what speech actually does. I want to look also at the way in which language is located in time, something always temporarily enacted, constantly accumulating through successive exchange, never finishing its account of its environment, but always inviting fresh events of speaking and hearing. There are no last words in our exploration of our environment. There is no point at which we say, actually, it's useless now to write a poem or construct a philosophy or paint a picture or indeed propose marriage. There are no last words in this temporal unfolding of a particular act in which we interact with our environment. And that interaction leads thirdly to some thoughts about language as an embodied phenomenon. <clears throat> language is actually something we do with our bodies. We talk so much of the time and we write so much of the time as if language went on in our heads. And by in our heads, of course, we mean not in our bodies, which is eccentric enough in itself. But language is something we do with our vocal cords and our tongues. And if you come from the Celtic fringe, also with our hands quite a lot. It's rooted in physical negotiations and transactions, internal and external. So how do embodied speakers, necessarily located here and not there, now and not then, create a linguistic environment where there's an assumption of convergent and continuous meanings and shared references? How does speech create a kind of bodily solidarity? Community, you might even call it. And then there's a very remarkable feature of our language which will need some careful study. The curious fact that language generates excessive speech, forms of utterance that go well beyond what is functionally required, forms of speech that, deliberately or not, put pressure on speakers to do or say more than is immediately comfortable or apparently reasonable in order to enlarge the, the practices of communication. Excess, in this sense, covers both the uses of metaphor and the practical disciplines of poetry, but it also has some connections with the unavoidable strains of language in innovative science. We seem to assume that when we put the pressure on our language in various ways, something is, so to speak, squeezed out in the process, generated in a way which would not otherwise have happened. More about that in a later lecture. But finally, we need to think about silence, about the particular ways in which speech is suspended in different contexts, not as a pure absence of utterance or an accidental gap, but silence as a strategy within what we say, or rather a sort of unavoidable move outwards in order to give what we say another kind of location, a particular sort of horizon or hinterland without which what we say would be vacuous. So those are some of the aspects of human language that in these lectures I want to tease out a little. And they all carry a challenge to any idea that there is a primitive literal level in our speech on whose foundation 
all metaphor and symbol are built up. Without at this point going into the immense subject of the origins of language, we can at least say that it's associated with a particular moment in cultural evolution, made possible by a particular moment in the physical evolution of the cerebral cortex, a moment at which representation becomes a shared human practice. And what I want to try to clarify in what's left of this lecture is that representation does not have to mean some sort of reproduction of a particular set of data. To represent the environment by means of talking about it, by means of sound, is already a step away from reproducing a set of data. Representation is not necessarily imitation, let alone substitution. Representation becomes a distinctly interesting matter in this light. Not simply the copying, imitating, or just registering of features of the environment, it seems to presuppose some notion of a characteristic form of action that we encounter which can then be activated in different media. It's this notion that lies behind the persistent belief that names embody power, that words are not arbitrarily related to what they designate or evoke, in the sense that they at least crystallize the openness of the subject to being changed by the object, by the object, in some sense, living in the subject. There are, of course, crude and magical versions of this, and it's a view that at times has acquired a deservedly bad name in theology, let alone philosophy. But in all that follows, it'll be important to remember that this conviction about continuity or participation between agents in relations of knowing is bound up in any proper nuanced account of representing. So I'm working with a distinction between description, in the sense I've generally been taking for granted so far, and representation. A distinction, a working distinction, between description as the careful analytic account of elements in our environment, and representation as something which, without necessarily seeking to imitate or reproduce, expresses the presence in another mode of what we're talking about. Now here is an apology to philosophers. The word representation is used in a huge variety of ways by different philosophers. It's an issue which has been extensively discussed quite recently in the work of Daniel Dennett, David Chalmers, and others. And I'm not at this point going to try and unpick the areas of convergence and divergence between their usages and mine. I'm going to take the risk of defining what I'm going to mean by representation and hoping for the best. It's always a rather risky business proposing a new usage like this. But the use I'm suggesting, I think, has the advantage of being relatively straightforward in itself and can claim some roots in the work of Max Black in his discussion of the representational aspect of metaphor. Black says that is one among several means of showing sorry, one among several means of showing what is there that are not substitutes for bundles of statements of fact. That's to say, we believe we make some true statements 
that are not just substitutes for bundles of statements of fact. That is what he calls the representational aspect of metaphor. And those things range from photographs and realistic de depiction, which are very close to the descriptive end of the spectrum, through to diagrams, charts, and maps, which are not, let alone moving into the realm of metaphor and symbol. Or, again, to quote from a discussion by Michael Arbib and Mary Hesse in their Gifford Lectures of 1983, metaphorical shifts of meaning depending on similarities and differences between objects are pervasive in language, not deviant, and some of the mechanisms of metaphor are essential to the meaning of any descriptive language, whatever. Description itself, Arbib and Hesse are suggesting, rests on representation, something which is not substitution for bundles of fact. And they go on to spell out an account of understanding description and assessing its truth and adequacy, which requires a kind of speech locating a referent within what they designate a schema of understanding, a complex of use and association or resonance and recognition patterns or habits. They are arguing that truthful response to our environment is not about accurately referring to objects in isolation. We're going to need language that will carry reference to a schema, which may be a wider network of causal description or a wider network of symbolic pattern, which does not seek, I quote, to represent the state of the natural world for the purposes of prediction and control. But symbolic schemata, those frameworks within which we locate the most careful kinds of description we can come up with, are inferior or secondary only if we hold that the primary and essential purpose of speech is prediction and control. Representation may be used in this way, but it's not necessarily or even primarily directed thus. Representational speech will carry a good many features that are irrelevant to prediction and control, but answer to something more like a sheer desire to understand and to deploy verbal symbols in ways that enlarge the repertoire of communication that can be both, both more purposive and more playful or indeed more contemplative. I'm assuming this characterization of representation as a wide-ranging strategy, touching on but not confined by questions of how to manipulate the environment successfully, and centered on language uses that are nearer metaphor than what is imagined to be literal description. As we'll be seeing again and again, questions about what spills over the frontier of description are pervasive, not deviant. And the perceptive listener will have noticed that by this stage of the discussion, two quite strictly metaphysical principles have been eased into our thinking. These preliminary reflections on natural theology and human language have noted the way we assume that dependence is an inalienable aspect of finite being, and have further suggested, by way of thinking through the primitive presence of metaphor in our accounts of the world, a distinction between intelligible forms of action and the precise embodiments or physical vehicles in which they're encountered. That is, to speak at all about the life of the world around us, we presuppose both dependence and analogical fluidity. Not some sort of doctrine of separable forms or a dualism of form and matter in the usual sense. 
we recognize that even within a rigorously material account of the world, the communicative sense made by this or that object is not another feature of its material composition. To use the famous Wittgensteinian example, the expression is not a material feature of the face, yet can only be intelligible as the shape of a material face, with due respect to Cheshire cats. Now, if we go back to the very earliest days of Homo sapiens, we have ample evidence of a mindset for which representation in the sense I've been sketching, the life of one agent echoed or rekindled in the life of another, was actually a focal matter of conviction. The remarkable British Museum exhibition of this year on the art of the Ice Age not only illustrates the prevalence of straightforward representation of animals and other human subjects, but also tantalizingly suggests the possibility of a sort of visual metaphorization. Among the artifacts of the Ice Age exhibited so beautifully in the BM were a set of small statuettes of lion men, figures with lion's heads and human bodies, or more precisely with lion's heads and human bodies partly shaped in leonine form. The makers of such objects were engaged in a profoundly linguistic task. They are so depicting one thing, that to quote from the catalogue, that it speaks of another. Blurring boundaries and sharpening definition. These sculptures are indicative of a mind capable of imagining new concepts rather than simply reproducing existing forms. They thus indicate the presence of prefrontal cortex activity in the brain, incidentally. Whoever made the lion men must have been able to speak in a way not wholly dissimilar to ourselves. A characteristic intelligible form of life or action is identified and recognized at work in another living agent. The representation creates a new hybrid material shape which describes or corresponds to nothing in the real world in the order of description, but equally is not just a casual jeu d'esprit, not just stitching a bit of one object onto another. If you look at one of the best examples of this sculpture, you'll see that the lion-like style in which the figure's upper arms are portrayed subtly tells us that the artist is thinking through different degrees of lion-likeness in the human form, thinking how two significantly different shapes are to be drawn into one. Human identity is a vehicle for leonine, leonine identity is a vehicle for human. There's no way of telling what exactly is at work here. But the point is clear enough about the mental skills entailed. They are skills plainly in line with what Arbib and Hesse in their Gifford lectures say about schematic knowledge. An Ice Age artist creating such an image is modeling more than what is directly perceived in that she or he is able to form an implicit heuristic account of what it's like to be a lion, such that this, what it's like, can be fused with what it's like to be a human being. Leonine identity and human are to that extent grasped schematically in relation to an unspecified range of environmental factors. Now, in the background of all this, and I've hinted at it at one or two points, 
there's a set of issues that have to do with the neuroscience of the brain. The familiar distinction between right brain and left brain activity has recently been explored and extended by Ian McGilchrist in a very remarkable book called The Master and His Emissary. McGilchrist notes that although it's conventional wisdom to locate linguistic capacity in the parietal region of the brain's left hemisphere, the hemisphere more associated with collecting information or handling description in the terms I've been using, this alone can be a seriously misleading account of brain functioning. The right hemisphere is involved in language because it's involved in grasping the meaning of whole sentences and recognizing the tone or emotional register of an utterance in activities that, in other words, relate to schematic perception, representation. And the lateralization of brain function, that is specialization as between left and right hemispheres, and the asymmetry of the brain's structure occurred without language or tool design. That's to say, the particular physiological and neurological conditions that relate to language seem to predate the emergence of language and tool use. Linguistic development makes use of a pre-existing space in the brain's capacity. And there's a strong case which McGilchrist sets out very lucidly for concluding that what initially made that space in our brains was music, differentiated sound production, adapting for an ever-growing range of expression and the building of relation, almost a kind of social grooming. This is where we can identify the ultimate roots of speech. And even with the language of description, the primal origins of such a function don't lie in a concern for communicating information, but a means of mapping and so manipulating the world, utilizing the frontal lobe capacity for producing virtual representation of reality, disembodied versions of elements of the environment, which allow us to focus on how we most effectively model what's around us so as to negotiate our way with it a function with strong left-brain-type associations, so it shouldn't surprise us to find this grounded in neurological fact. In other words, some of the conventional distinctions between left and right-brain activity break down or meld together, rather, when we look at the actual working of language. Language compensates for losses in perception involved in its virtual depictions by reinstating something of the musical origin of speech through metaphor. There's a toing and froing between left and right brain capacities all the time. The origins of linguistic capacity lie in pitched and differentiated sound allied to gesture as the body enters into a process of seeking continuity with what is both sensed internally and perceived externally. This capacity is refined into a mapping operation but the recognition of sameness in otherness that we earlier noted as basic to metaphorical speech comes to pervade this left-brain descriptive and analytical operation that is developed and saves it from the total dysfunctionality that would occur if there were no synthesis between this precise and descriptive and analytical activity and the holistic mapping of a schema which the right brain provides. Complex, I realize, but McGilchrist sums it up neatly. Language is a hybrid. It evolved from music, and in this part of its history represented the urge to communicate. And to the extent that it retains right hemisphere empathic elements, it still does. 
Its origins lie in the body and the world of experience. But referential language, with its huge vocabulary and sophisticated syntax, did not originate in a drive to communicate. And it has done everything it can to repudiate both its bodily origins and its dependence on experience, to become a world unto itself. Readers of McGilchrist's brilliant book will recognize the way in which he sees an imbalance in our understanding of the brain's hemispheres as responsible for the cultural crises and political crises in which we find ourselves today. Well, we've traveled a fair distance from Aquinas, but I hope that in looking at, first of all, some of the issues I touched on regarding the practice of meditation, and then some of the models proposed by neuroscience in relation to the brain's activity, I hope I've conveyed some sense of why those might be relevant to the reshaping of natural theology. We began by thinking provisionally about natural theology as a way of identifying where language about God came in, in the world of routine or everyday speech. But our further exploration has complicated the idea of the everyday. There is not a plain substrate of language that's without redundancies, symbols, appeals to schema or context. There is not an innocent descriptive language that can be hived off from what people actually say. There is not, therefore, something to which all speech can be reduced. It's true that God does not come into discourse as the only example of something that unsettles ordinary description. But we might bear two things in mind. First, we can grant that there is a register of speech that quite simply does not expect or routinely seem to require much in the way of schematic or representational treatment. For practical purposes, we know pretty much what it means and how to deploy it. Its metaphors are buried, no longer recognized as such. Granted that the literal metaphorical duality is one that needs dismantling, we do, broadly, know when a metaphor has ceased to function in any very startling ways. To speak of the hands of a clock causes no ripple on the surface of routine communication. We do not turn our minds anxiously to clocks looking for fingers, though we may turn our minds and eyes anxiously to clocks wondering when the lecture is going to conclude. We can still distinguish between this re register and the consciously excessive or apparently eccentric voice that prompts unease with supposedly simple descriptive language and demands a better understanding of the representative task. Language about God is indeed not unique in having a disruptive effect, which is why it is in some measure illuminating to reflect about it in, collection with, in connection with the language of poetry or indeed of certain kinds of science. But as we'll see again and again in our discussions, language about God proposes the most serious disruption of all because it proposes certain understandings of the character of finite being itself. It proposes something about all possible subjects of discourse. And the implication of this is that it can't be numbered among possible subjects of discourse in any obvious sense. So that what is said about it is going to be linguistically eccentric in a uniquely marked way, and the role of what we could call strategic silence becomes central, which will be the substance of the final lecture in this series. To push the argument just a little bit further, the model of representation that I've sketched so far 
implies a relation between the knower and the object of knowledge, in which the object of knowledge is active beyond the grasp of the knower. Yet that's not to say there's an unknowable interiority eternally defended from the knowing subject. As we move further into exploring what this activity beyond our grasp might be, or how it might be talked of, that as yet unknown residue takes on, as we discover it, the contours of what can be thought, what can be understood. Hegel's much misunderstood axiom that the real is the rational means that what is there for perception of any kind is there to be thought, to be rendered in concept and metaphor. It continues to offer a structured life in which the knower has a part, or which has a part in the knower. So wherever we find ourselves on the spectrum of knowing, we assume that what confronts us offers the possibility of some kind of ordered speech, some kind of representation, a continuation of what is there in another mode. If there is such a dimension to knowing, the dimension of an indeterminate yet intelligible hinterland to everything we perceive, we're led to another postulate of the highest generality. Finite being is always dependent, so we've assumed, the product of exchanges of energy. But we now begin to see grounds for the suspicion that finite being must also always be intelligible representable in the widest sense. Whatever we encounter is something that triggers capacities for recognition and representation in our minds. And it's this insight, or something very like it, that has suggested to theologians the language of a finite reality that constantly gives itself to be known. We advance in our engagement with our environment in the confidence that the activity we meet is congruent with our own activity to the degree that we can think it, and that it represents a feature of activity as such, or being as such, a direction if not towards us, at least in tune with us, moving into our subjectivity as a presence that enlarges our capacity and serves our welfare. To go on in the quest for knowledge, under whatever form, requires some version of this confidence. If our speech is constantly opening out onto the horizon of further questioning, we can begin to see how this trajectory, for practical purposes unlimited in prospect, may carry with it the intuition of an infinite flow of activity characterized by what we can only speak of as generosity. In other words, the indeterminate diversity of possibilities of representation around us points us towards an abundance always bound up in understanding, always rooted in the intelligible, and also active in bestowing its activity on and in what it is not. The schema that is called up as these considerations are spelled out is ultimately the schema, the global picture, of unlimited intelligence and love. If we characterize finite being as dependent, this model claims, what it depends on is what we can only speak of as an act of intelligent and beneficent, beneficent bestowal. Now these metaphysical points are made here in very abbreviated form, but they'll recur as the discussion advances. What I'd like to show is how the unfinished exploratory character of human language 
establishes us as speakers in a particular imaginative context, as subjects constantly seeking to respond to changing opportunities of participating in our environment and being variously enlarged by those responses. And to speak of response is already to gesture towards a prior reality of address, an address to which we are always subsequent, even a gift which we are always seeking to receive appropriately. To speak of enlargement is to gesture towards an assumption that the relation between the knowing subject and its environment is fundamentally and irreducibly nourishing, making for growth. Not exclusively, though importantly, growth in some controlling capacity, but growth in an awareness of connection that allows not only a more successful negotiating of the environment, but a celebration of its resource. Language as a festive holding up of what is represented so that it can be seen freshly. Art and contemplation, as well as techne and politics. And that, in turn, has significant ethical consequences, though I won't have time to go into much detail about them. So in the next lecture, I want to look specifically at various aspects of language as behavior that isn't simply determined. We begin with two points about language as we know it, that it's possible to say what is not the case, to create representations that are at odds with what is there, and that language is always triangulated between the sign, the sign maker, and the signified. Much of the confusion that can attend our thinking about language and indeed consciousness arises from the attempt to reduce three terms to two. In trying to map more effectively the particular kind of freedom that belongs to human speech, we should find ourselves better able to understand how language advances through the processes of self-questioning. Victor Preller, you may remember, spoke of the human intellect as ordered to what it could not know. In the light of what we're about to look at, we might clarify this, and you remember I had some reservations about the phrase, we might clarify this by saying that as far as finite objects of knowing are concerned, our minds are ordered to schemata that constantly reveal themselves to be problematic or at least tantalizingly capable of being read in different ways when thoroughly explored. That is, they reveal themselves as generating further questions and so as generating, as we know them, a recognition of what we don't know. And we could say further that in regard to infinite being, we could only acknowledge our incapacity to form a concept, while at the same time enjoying a relation analogous to knowing, insofar as we participate in an action directed towards us and active in us. In either case, this ordering to the unknown clarifies what we might want to say about language's freedom. The relation between knower and known is not, whether in finite or infinite context, a matter of a certain determinate set of facts or truths, Max Black's bundle of facts, causing a certain determinate set of signs, a particular fixed set of definitions. On which, back to Michael Lunig, for an almost last word for now. The word God, writes Lunig, cannot be grasped scientifically, rationally, or even theologically without it exploding. It can only be held 
lightly and poetically. And part of the point of what follows in these lectures is to look at some of the phenomenology of explosions, the breakdown of speech when it turns to God and the breakdown of speech when it is unable to turn to God. Somewhere in between, there is perhaps a way of holding lightly and poetically. And finding that way of holding is surely an aspect of what the renewed natural theology we're searching for just might embody. Thank you very much. Okay, we now have about 15 minutes for questions, comments, uh, or discussion. We have a couple of roving mics, so if you could uh, indicate, raising your hand, if you have a question, and if you could give us just a moment for, to, for the mic to get to you. And we have a question up there, yes. Well, Rowan, you have arrived among us in this year of political referendum, and some of us would be grateful for some hints about how to shift the ground of discourse, because up till now, uh, the ground has been covered by the more descriptive, uh, analytical mind. Uh, but I think some of us would like to know how to introduce this generous spirit that you've been speaking about shifting the ground of the discourse into uh, a disruptive discourse which raises other subjects, other aspects of life. So I think you will cover the ground of the next uh, few weeks, a couple of weeks. But something to say now about this uh, activity that we can engage in, and particularly some of us who, who are raised in this um, place of disruption, built during another disruption, how to use this kind of uh, disruptive language that shifts the ground of the debate Gosh, thank you. Um, <laughs> yes, I, I often find that one of the first questions after a lecture on almost any subject is, so how do we change the world? <laughs> but thank you for asking it. Um, what do we do? We, we look at our own language and assumptions, for one thing. We look at the degree to which our own habitual talk and relations reflect zero-sum games between atomistic individuals who are all competing to possess. And we're all involved in that, we're all implicated. We try to clarify that. We look for the sort of language, private and public, that takes us somewhere else. And this is where I do think the language of both the arts and the sciences is crucial. The language of the arts, I, I more and more believe, is absolutely not a luxury in helping people to rethink where they are. And a society which has lost its deep commitment to the life of the imagination is a society that's in lasting trouble. Equally, a society that is not giving space to genuinely innovative science is in trouble. And I'm not just talking about technological development, I'm thinking about real, you know, um, groundbreaking science. 
And very simply, I think we need to make sure that we are ourselves, as far as we can be, involved in creating spaces where these questions can be raised in clearing room for people to come and discuss, to ask, to organize, um, and sometimes the churches can be quite good at this, to organize the sort of public meeting where public figures and politicians can perhaps be asked questions they don't know the answers to. Not to embarrass them, but to, to remind us all that the, you know, the framework is not, not what they take for granted. We look at ourselves, we look at what we prioritize in our educational systems. We look at what we can create in our immediate environment for honest discussion. And there's lots more, but that's a start. Uh, thanks for the, for the lecture. Um, I have a couple of questions. Firstly, um, when you were talking about the language of arts and how important arts was, it occurred to me, and I, I was thinking about that because I'm quite involved in that, is, is when you speak that, is art an artist discourse, a language like language that you are talking about now, or is it, the, or is it beyond the language? Does, in other words, do you use art, is art the mode of getting to the edge of language, or is it already beyond the edge of language, as it were? Um, because one might want, for example, in certain ways of using art to experience and to foment the imagination that's necessary for language to go beyond. So is it a technical mm -hmm. thing or is it something more than that? Um, the other point was a kind of very minor point. I mean, I, I, I presume you'll be talking about these things much later, about language and embodiment. I mean, in, in, in practical and policy terms, it seems to me the, the one thing that we've hit now is, for example, Clark and others talking about witnesses having not to wear the veil because you need to see the face. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, really interesting question about um, art there. there. There will be a bit more on this. Um, the arts are, of course, things we do communicatively. They are language. And one of the things that I think is most interesting about art at its most profound is that hmm, it moves towards certain kinds of silence, certain kinds of interruption. I mean, the, the example which I, I'll be quoting later on, but which always comes back to me is, how long is that interval between the last moment of the concert or the play and the applause breaking out? Because that's often a measure, isn't it, of what's happened, what's happened during that particular bit of speaking or singing or performing. So I wouldn't want to say that art is beyond language, but that art is one of the most dramatic ways in which we are brought to that nagging, irresistible sense of there having to be another register into which we need to move if only we knew how to do it. So, not that art is beyond language, I think, but that it does, it's one of the most conspicuous ways of getting to that, that frontier. Um, the question about the body and language and giving evidence in a veil and so forth, it's an interesting one to which I, I think it's, quite risky to give a, a glib answer. I think that, for example, in the context of education, it would be quite difficult for a full-face veil to be effective. I think you need to see and hear tones and 
gesture and the feel of a face. Giving evidence is a little bit different, but I really think that we probably have to use our common sense with this, that if someone doesn't want to give evidence without a veil in front of a mixed public, then for goodness sake, you make arrangements for somebody legally responsible and recognized to do it in private. Um, you know. And that, of course, does focus what to me is a very interesting question, the difference between different cultures in what expectations are of how you react. It's not just veils, because of course there are cultures where the, the kind of emotive response that we might instinctively give and receive in the culture we inhabit is regarded as inappropriate. Um, some people here will, will know, I'm sure, firsthand of cultures where an impassive response in public is always required, veils or no veils. So it goes a bit deeper than just the veil question. Just a comment which brings together the two questions that we just heard. Springing again from your mention of the word generosity, you spoke also of benevolence, and it struck me that representation can be representation of, that's what you've been concerned with mainly, but we should remember too that it can be speaking for on behalf of, and this is how that point connects with political questions and I would hope questions regarding art. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Um, that's, that's an extremely interesting point which, in fact, I have been trying to turn over a little bit in my mind to make the connections between representation as a, as a political term and as a, an epistemological one. Um, I think when we're talking about legitimate representation speaking for someone else, actually some of what I, I was saying in this lecture would apply. Um, it's not enough simply to reproduce what you have been mandated to say, to repeat the script. Representation in an active and legitimate and creative political democracy is, I think, one where those who speak for any community can genuinely claim to have a share in it, that the life of that community is, is in them for the purposes of that speaking. It's, it's a large question, but I, I'm very interested that you've picked it up and it's well worth exploring further, I think. We have a question in the front row. You made a very brief reference to Celtic languages, and I wondered if there is implicit in the Celtic languages in Britain, a kind of um, recognition that of the space between these two areas that could be seen in some of the grammatical um, structures. It's a really intriguing point. Um, I'm actually going to have a little bit to say 
in a later lecture about Welsh poetry and its, <laughs> and its techniques. Um, but I wouldn't, of course, at all want to go on record in public with any statement that sounded as if I thought Celts were better than other people. So uh, <laughs> I must be very cautious here. Um, it, it is, in all seriousness, intriguing to look at the ways in which different languages um, apply a different metaphysic. I'll be touching in a later lecture on some philosophical work on the structure both of Mandarin and of certain computer languages. Um, just, just to draw out the way in, in which you know, languages do carry a certain set of assumptions about how the world works. So I, I might leave it till then. You alluded earlier uh, to fundamental theological problems with the, uh, 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 the working through uh, of the relationship between the knower dwelling in the representation and the representation dwelling in the knower. Now, with that in mind, it seems to me uh, that the, the spectre of the theological projects of divine unknowability in uh, both uh, St. Gregory of Nyssa and uh, in St. Dionysius hang over your current project. Mm -hmm. Could you perhaps at the most general level locate the points of conjunction and disjunction between what you're attempting to do here and those mm -hmm. uh, theological projects? Thank you very much indeed. Um, yes, I, I find these are on whole friendly spectres. These are, you know, friendly ghosts and um, more treat than trick, let's say, if we're thinking of the spectres of Gregory and Dionysius. And what interests me in Gregory, first of all, is that he is quite clearly committed to the idea that theology can tell the truth, but at the same time recognizes that there is a point at which the development of the theological language brings you to a recognition that the one thing you cannot do is provide what he calls a horos, a definition, a terminal definition of God. So the delicate balance between what seems like a really radical agnosticism, you can't define the substance, the essence of God, and a commitment to quite a lot of precision and even finicky precision about doctrinal language. That tension is one which he and many theologians of that era walk with, you know, a degree of success. Dionysius, I think, pushes it a little bit further because, of course, at the end of the Divine Names, he's, he's very clear that um, quite a lot of what you have said, if you're going into another register, simply will not work as straightforward descriptive language. It, it is a method and a practice, you might almost say in Buddhist terms, skillful means to get you to that point. It's not false, but its application becomes so problematic that you have to give up eventually. When he says finally that about God, you can say neither that he is one nor that he is three. You know, he's taking you to that stage. So there's a lot of that in the background of what I'm, what I'm saying. And I hope again in later lectures, some of that may come out a bit more clearly, especially in the last of these, if anybody's still here by then.
There's a question uh, way in the back. <clears throat> This is more of a question of clarification, I suppose. Uh, you made a distinction in language between what you called descriptive language and representation. And the first you said was uh, sort of an analytic account of things. I, I wondered how deep you meant that distinction to go. Because a lot of the authors that you mention, uh, Wittgenstein and, and Wittgensteinians like Cavell and Black, probably wouldn't have admitted that there was at least a distinction in kind between those, those two. But if there isn't a distinction in kind, it's not clear whether or not uh, you're gonna get the kind of distance that you want to show um, your brand of language to have. Mm -hmm. uh, fair enough, um, and I'll be, again, trying to tease it out a bit further. Um, blacks, account I found very helpful here, simply in, um, in its clarity about the idea that you could be speaking truthfully, adequately, appropriately, without necessarily regarding what you were saying as you know, point by point corresponding to something out there, clusters of stuff, clusters of fact. Um, Wittgenstein himself on this is as elusive as on any subject, and I won't start that hair running at this stage of the evening. Um, Cavell, I find most helpful of all, and there'll be quite a bit about him um, in the next lecture, because I think that without projecting onto them precisely the distinction that I've been arguing for, I'm seeking some way of suggesting those modes of you know, potentially truthful, adequate, appropriate utterance, which cannot be segmented into point by point or item by item correspondence, which are very obviously um, metaphysis is allogenos and move into another mode, just as speech itself as a mode of representation is, is quite eccentric in some ways when you start thinking about it. It is not depiction. It is um, claiming that some reality is adequately or appropriately presented in this particular physical activity which is speaking. So I'm not sure how tight a disjunction it is. I think the opposite ends of the spectrum are reasonably clear. I find McGilchrist quite helpful here on looking at the, the characteristic things we might associate with the descriptive or the analytic and perhaps the the manipulative and tool-oriented aspects, as opposed to those other essays in language which are much more obviously like looking for an attunement to the world, the musical um, end of the spectrum that he talks about. So I think there's probably something to be said for this, and I'll, um, I'll keep exploring it. And no, I'm not suggesting that either Black or Cavell would put it quite like that, but there are certainly elements in Cavell which, especially that great last section of the claim of reason, which may help us here. So, more to come. We have been questioning our speaker for quite a while. I think we will need to, to draw things to a close. Uh, we've had a superb opening Gifford lecture. 
uh, sort of introducing, laying out the conceptual framework for this rethinking, this reshaping of natural theology, which we're being offered. We opened with a very important question of where did the language of God come into human speech? We then had an exploration of the distinctions between descriptive language with its analytic approach and representational language, metaphorical speech. We considered the um, development of language through meditation, the Buddhist tradition, and in human evolution, and in neuroscience. And we came around to a, a vision of the schema of unlimited intelligence and love, which I rather liked. <laughs> Lord Williams, you have kept us spellbound for an hour and a half. And uh, with a great richness of language, the, the lecture itself was extremely poetic. We look forward very much to the rest of the series, and we look forward in particular to our next lecture on Can We Say What We Like? Language, Freedom, and Determinism, which will be presented tomorrow afternoon, 5.30, here in the Assembly Hall. Could you join me again, please, in thanking Lord Williams. This production is brought to you by the University of Edinburgh.